And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in live over here at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, at Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. And so I was off last week. Uh, it was my mother-in-law's birthday and we went to the mountains and enjoyed the day there. And so I uh, was not live last week, uh, but back on this week to talk about a number of things that are happening around uh, the country, one of those being the March for Life went virtual, so they didn't have the big event uh, for the first time uh, since having the event. They they didn't have an in-person march uh, with, you know, half a million people there in D.C., uh, but it, but from all accounts, it went well. Uh, the virtual event did and had a number of speakers, and, and there were some people in D.C. Uh, marching, but but not near as much as, as we usually see. Uh, a couple things I want to talk about today, uh, one regarding executive orders and uh, the president, President Biden and his executive orders uh, since the first day in office. I think we're up to about 42 or so executive orders. And look, people are getting uh, been out of shape about it and upset about it. I don't agree with them either. Uh, you know, legislating via executive order is not the way the founders uh Intended on things to happen in this country. Uh, but look, the reality is every president that comes in office is going to do that. Obama, uh, back when he was president, said, if, if Congress will not uh, pass certain legislation, then I have a phone and a pen. And what he meant by that is I have executive privilege. I have an executive orders that, that I can sign and put things out there. And that's what Obama did. Uh, now, what happened when you legislate by executive order via the Oval Office, what happens? Well, four years, eight years later, Donald Trump comes in and he undoes a lot of what Obama did. And so if a president can sign executive orders to push an agenda, then the next guy or girl can come in and sign executive orders to remove that agenda and push another agenda. So President Trump come in and he said, OK, we're going to get rid of a lot of the things that Obama did. And we're going to sign executive orders to push an agenda. Then four years later, Joe Biden comes in and says, OK, President Trump removed a lot of the agenda that Obama set forth. We're going to get us back to those uh, that agenda. And then we're going to have other executive orders. Look, this is not rocket science. This is not uh, it shouldn't surprise you. It, it, it should frustrate you, certainly, but it shouldn't surprise you. And one thing that Joe Biden has done with that is the Mexico City policy which was in place during the Obama administration, I believe was in place during Clinton, not in place during Bush, back in place during Obama, not in place during Trump, back in place now under Joe Biden. So what does that mean? That means that our tax dollars are, are going to fund abortion across the world, and, and that should matter to us. But look, this this didn't didn't surprise me. Go back and listen to the archive. I, I was talking about this throughout the election. That Joe Biden was going to push the, the Mexico City policy. That Joe Biden was going to uh, push an abortion agenda. I've been telling you that for months, if not years. And so we knew that was going to happen. And so you shouldn't have been surprised. It's frustrating, but but certainly should not catch you off guard. There's an article over at the National Review written by the editors that I think is important. And it talks about the extremism uh, of the current administration on abortion. And it says this, Joe Biden's supposed campaign of unity now extends to forcing American taxpayers to subsidize abortion regardless of their moral qualms. In an executive order on Thursday, Biden rescinded the Mexico City policy, which prohibits U.S. foreign aid money from funding groups that provide or promote abortion in other countries. 
President Reagan was the first to enact a policy which has been in place under every subsequent Republican president and undone by every subsequent Democrat. Now, again, when you do things via executive order, this is what happens. This is why I'm frustrated. Because Reagan put it in place, and then every Republican who has served since Reagan put it in place, and every Democrat who has served since Reagan has taken it away. Now, how come... When we had conservatives, pro-lifers in the House, in the Senate, and the Oval Office, why didn't we put legislation in place? Actual legislation that can't be undone via executive order. It goes back to the reality, folks, that they're all about chasing the car, not catching it. They're about campaigning on the issue, not actually doing something about the issue. The article goes further. Despite his professed personal opposition to abortion, President Biden is no exception. Announcing the order, the White House affirmed its support for, quote, women's and girls' sexual and reproductive health and rights in the United States as well as globally, and dismissed the Mexico City policy with the favored rhetoric of abortion advocacy groups, the global gag rule. The Trump administration had not only reinstated the Mexico City policy after President Obama's tenure, but also had expanded the rule to cover all foreign health foreign health assistance overseas. That move increased the amount of aid money covered by the policy from $600 million to nearly $9 billion. Following Biden's executive order, that large pot of federal funding once again will flow indiscriminately to foreign aid groups such as Planned Parenthood International and other organizations whose chief aim is to profit from an increased number of abortions around the globe, including in countries that reject abortion. Meanwhile, With the same stroke of the pen, Biden directed his Department of Health and Human Services to consider rescinding a second Trump administration policy, which prohibits abortion providers from claiming federal funding under the Title uh, 10 Family Planning Program. The current regulation requires abortion groups to financially separate their abortion business from any other services in order to qualify for the funding. Planned Parenthood declined to do so, costing the organization about $60 million a year, a mere pittance of its half a billion in federal funding. If Biden's HHS nominee Xavier Becerra is confirmed by the Senate in spite of his lack of qualifications. Undoing this policy will most certainly be one of the first items on his to-do list. Though pro-abortion activists cheered these moves, the average American appears to have little interest in forcing the taxpayer to fund abortion. Polling suggests that a majority of the public opposes using U.S. aid money to fund abortion overseas, as do most Democrats and even most who call themselves pro-choice. Likewise, the majority of uh, opposes federal funding for abortion here in the U.S., including about a third of Democrats and pro-choice voters. Despite Biden's efforts to hide behind the Catholic faith and avoid defending his extremist abortion policy under his administration, Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers need no longer choose between providing abortion and profiting at taxpayer expense. And so, yeah, it's not surprising. Look, none of that is surprising. The abortion industry has been waiting for this day. They've been waiting for the day where the the Oval Office changed, where more executive orders would come in and flip all of this stuff. And so, again, if, if, if Congress, pro-life Congress, wants to do anything about this stuff, they're going to have to pass legislation. You can't just keep waiting for the next president to sign executive orders. That's not sustainable. It's ridiculous. Because guess what? In four years, if you see a Republican president, they're going to do all of this all over again. 
And so all the funding that's going to Planned Parenthood via uh, Title X or, or all the funding that's going to uh, foreign countries via our taxpayer dollars will stop because an executive order will say so. And then if a Democrat wins the next time, then all that's going to flip again. It, it's the cycle. And we just keep going along with the cycle. And it makes no sense to me at all. We don't hold people accountable at the voting booth. We, we don't uh, have meaningful conversations with our legislators and, and congressmen and congresswomen to say, look, if you're really wanting to see a change, then this is what you need to do. Quit just chasing the car. And actually catch it. Actually produce legislation that's going to do something. You know what frustrated me th- this week was there were some Republican congressmen, pro-lifers, seeking to push legislation that would uh, enact tougher abortion restrictions. That's for show. So am I being cynical? Maybe. But here's how I know it's for show. Because they wait until they don't have the power to actually make a change to push that legislation. So it's for show. It's so they can go back on the campaign trail and say, look, we're in the minority now. We don't have power, but look at these pieces of legislation that I drafted. Don't you support me? Look how pro-life I am. Don't you support me? And my response to them would be, I would love to support you, but where was this legislation when you did have the power to do something? Where was this legislation when you did have majority? It seems to me that you're using this as a political football. It seems to me that you're using this so you can print campaign material to make us feel good and get us riled up, but in reality, you know it's not going to do anything. In reality, you know it's not not just going to be, it, it won't be passed, but it won't even be taken up in committee. But you can go back to your constituents and say, I tried. You can get on Fox News or CNN or, or MSNBC and you can get in front of the camera and say, I tried. Look look what I'm doing. I'm trying. I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for the unborn. But when you really have those opportunities to fight for the unborn, you're not doing it. You're not being bold. You're being bold now because you, you were in the minority and you can't do anything anyway. This is why I get cynical. This is why I get frustrated. This is why... It it, it bugs me to no end because we've seen it all before. There's nothing new here. This is what we see when when the Democrats had control of the House, Senate and the Oval Office under Obama. Republicans were pushing a lot of things. Because they knew it wouldn't get passed. And, and, and then when Republicans had control of everything, they didn't really push that hard for pro-life legislation. Why is that? At the very least, it should make us think. And, and so so this is why I'm constantly telling you, don't put your hope in the Oval Office. Don't put your hope in Congress. Don't put your hope in the Supreme Court because you're going to be disappointed. Look, go back and listen to past shows. I told you, when Joe Biden and Harris take office, these are the things that are going to happen. And we've seen it all. They're going to put us back into the Iran deal. They're going to put us back in the Paris Climate Accord. They're going to do all of these things that Trump undone, undid while he was president via executive order. That's what they do. 
So you can get angry about it. But you didn't have a problem when President Trump was doing executive orders. Why? Because it worked with you. It worked with your agenda, with your narrative. I get it. We see things differently when it comes to that. Well, if our team is doing it, it's okay. But if the other team is doing it, it's not okay. We're all a little hypocritical when it comes to that. But I'll say flat out, the Mexico City policy being rescinded, there is no reason. Listen to how crazy this is. Because of the Hyde Amendment, we do not pay for abortion with taxpayer dollars. Now, do we give money to abortion industry via taxpayer dollars? Yes. But technically, they're supposed to keep those budgets separate. And so money is not supposed to be spent on abortion with our taxpayer dollars inside of our country. But yet, we're spending billions around the world to provide abortion. There's no poll that's ever been done that says the American people support providing abortion around the world with taxpayer dollars. No poll says that. But yet here we are. A president that claims to be personally pro-life, I would argue against that. I don't believe that's the case anymore. But let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. A president that claims to be personally pro-life, but when it comes to policy, he's not is now taking our money and sending it overseas to pay for abortion. Yeah, that's frustrating. But that's why elections have consequences. And that's why we still get up every day at Hope Resource Center and do the work that we do. That's why, as Christians, we get up and do the work that we do. That's why we love our community. That's why we serve. That's why we partner. That's why we engage. Because if we sit around and wait for the courts, if we sit around and wait for Congress, you're going to be sitting around for a long, 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 long time. Frankly, we've been sitting around since 1973 waiting. Republican presidents, Democrat presidents, Republican judges, Democrat judges. And we're still, we still see Roe v. Wade as law of the land. Sure, we made some great strides, and I've talked about it on this show. We made great strides in our state, in Alabama, in a lot of your red conservative states. We made great strides. And there's still a lot to do. What I'm trying to tell you is what, what's happening in Washington right now should not surprise you. Shouldn't have caught you off guard. You shouldn't be flabbergasted at, oh, how could he write and sign that executive order? This was coming. We knew it was coming. We'll talk more when we come back. Everybody here. Everybody So as we continue the conversation, as we ended the last segment, I was talking about the, there's no poll out there. There's no poll that says, of the American people that says, you know what I want you to do with our taxpayer dollars? I want you to send my taxpayer dollars, my money overseas to fund abortion no one says that no one and and i can prove that because there's an article discussing one of the most recent polls that it's saying not only do we want do we not want our taxpayer dollars to go overseas we do not want the abortion to continue as as it has in america we want more restrictions that's what the polls are saying listen to this article uh Right now, according to a new Marist poll out last week, more than three quarters of Americans support significant restrictions on abortion, including a majority of Americans who describe themselves as what? Pro-choice. You heard that right. The survey was commissioned by the Knights of Columbus and surveyed more than a thousand adults in the U.S. in mid-January. And it has a margin of error of 3.5 points. For more than a decade, the group has commissioned Marist to conduct a public opinion survey on abortion each January ahead of the annual March for Life. 
and it nuanced questions uh, tend to give useful insight into Americans' views on abortion policy. While Americans who call themselves pro-choice, 53%, outnumber those who describe themselves as pro-life, 43%. Most, first off, let's stop there. Would you have guessed that only 53% of the American people call themselves pro-choice? Or would you have thought it was higher? Well, if you watch the news and you read the news, you, probably like me, would assume that number to be higher. Well, you know, as, as prevalent as abortion is in our society, you would, might assume that 75, 80% of the American people are pro-choice when polls consistently say only 53% are. And 43% call themselves pro-life. Most Americans believe that abortion should be limited to the first three months of pregnancy, if it's permitted at all. A slim majority of respondents said abortion either shouldn't be permitted at all or should be legal only in cases where a mother's life in danger or when she has been the victim of rape or incest. Just 15% of Americans say they support keeping abortion available to women at any point during pregnancy. And less than one-third of pro-choice Americans say the same. In fact, a majority of pro-choice respondents said they would limit abortion to the first three months of pregnancy. The so-called hard cases uh, are not. I mean, and, and so that's where, that's where we're at. And that's what we have to look at. And that's what we have to understand. Is that not all the American people want to see abortion. Those supporters of unlimited legal abortion often claim that an overwhelming majority of Americans support the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. The Marist poll results suggest otherwise. Almost two-thirds of respondents said if the court reconsiders Roe, it should either make abortion illegal or allow restrictions on abortions as determined by each state. Less than one-third said the court should maintain the position that abortion should be legal without any restrictions. Interestingly, 20% of Democrats who were surveyed described themselves as pro-life despite the fact that the Democratic Party has become increasingly in favor of permissive abortion laws. Nearly 6 in 10 Americans say they oppose using taxpayer money to underwrite abortion procedures, and more than one-third of pro-choice respondents agreed. 31% of Democrats said they oppose federal funding of abortion. Even as Democrats in Congress and President Joe Biden have pledged to eliminate the Hyde Amendment, which prevents the government from using entitlement spending to directly reimburse providers for abortion procedures. Meanwhile, more than three-quarters of Americans, that's 77%, are opposed to using U.S. aid money to fund abortions overseas. 77%. Under past Republican presidents, the Mexico City policy has prohibited federal aid from going to groups that provide or promote abortions around the globe. Biden has promised to undo that policy, and he's already done it with an executive order. But according to this survey, a majority of Americans at Biden's own party disagree with him. A slight majority, 55% of Democrats, said they do not want the U.S. to fund abortion globally. And nearly two-thirds of pro-choice Americans agreed. Independent voters feel even more strongly. 85% of independent voters said they oppose U.S. funding of overseas abortions. Finally, the poll suggests that most Americans, including those who are generally supportive of legal abortion, tend to oppose abortions chosen after an unborn child is diagnosed with Down syndrome. 70% of respondents said they oppose such abortions, and a majority of pro-choice respondents and Democrats agreed. The results are especially interesting when paired with the second poll out last week conducted by the polling company on behalf of Students for Life of America. The poll surveyed 800 registered voters between ages of 18 and 34 and found that most young voters disagree with the status quo on abortion. 
For instance, less than 20% of respondents to that poll said that abortion should be legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy, sometimes funded by the taxpayer, which is currently permitted under existing jurisprudence. In fact, when told that Roe allows abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy, 57% of these young voters said they oppose Roe compared with 30% who support it. More than 70%, meanwhile, said they would support placing limits of some kind on abortion. About half of those young voters believe that taxpayer money should not fund abortions, whether here or the U.S., per, or here in the U.S. or overseas. Perhaps most remarkable, nearly half of respondents said they support prohibiting abortion after a heartbeat can be detected, which can take place as early as six weeks gestation. Heartbeat bills were the focus of controversy in 2019 when several pro-life states attempted to enact these restri- restrictions. As it does every year, the Marist poll, along with the Students for Life of America survey of young voters, reveals the flaw in the wider landscape of public opinion polling, which usually fails to ask specific questions about what abortion restrictions voters might favor. Instead, most surveys offer only vague categories for self-sorting, asking respondents to say whether they are supportive of abortion in all or most cases, or opposed to abortion in all or most cases. Such polling fails to capture the complexity of the current state of abortion policy or Americans' views on how it should change. Look, that's why when you ask people, should we restrict abortion when a heartbeat is detected? A lot of people are going to say, yeah. Why is that? Because they don't know when the heartbeat's detected. If you, if you rephrase that question and said, should we restrict abortion at six to seven to eight weeks? Many of them are going to say, no, you should be able to have an abortion that early. Well, but the heartbeat's detected then. You see, they don't know. It's ignorance is what it is. It's all in how you phrase that question. And we as a society justify a lot of things. And so we, we even play word gymnastics with ourselves. We go, yes, you should have an abortion at six weeks. No, you should not have an abortion after a heartbeat is detected. Although that is the same time frame. But it's because of ignorance. It's because people don't know. They don't know. It's like when somebody says, it's my body, my choice. They're neglecting the fact that there's another body involved. They're neglecting the fact that there's a baby involved, a, a human involved with their own blood type, with their own DNA, with their own heartbeat, with their own brain, with their own dreams, with their own fingerprint. You see, when we say my body, my choice, we are being dishonest. But a lot of that is due to ignorance. They've been told their whole life, it is your body, it's your choice. It's just a clump. There's no lasting ramifications of ending this pregnancy. But again, it's like we talk about on the show a lot. Words matter. Definitions matter. If you are pregnant, what does that mean? That means a human is growing inside of you. If you are no longer pregnant, what does that mean? There is no longer a human growing inside of you. So something had to happen to that human growing inside of you. Did it disappear? Did its heartbeat stop? You see, we we don't go further. We don't define these things. So we have a society that just says, my body, my choice, and they don't understand what happens in an abortion. So if it's just a clump and it's your body, how come after an abortion is performed, they have to go in and remove the contents? Why would they have to do that? It's your body. The contents that are inside of you are, are yours, right? Why would they have to remove those if it's your body? 
If you're pregnant and, and they see on ultrasound that your baby has a deformity or something going on and that baby in the womb needs surgery, why do they sedate the baby? Is it because the baby feels pain? Well, if we sedate the baby to provide surgery for the baby to save its life and we want to protect them from pain, why do we then argue that there's no pain for the baby when an abortion happens? You see, it doesn't make a lot of sense because people aren't willing to have the conversations. We'll talk more when we come back. And as we continue the conversation today, what I want to end on in this second to last segment is talk to you about uh, New York. And, and the reason I want to talk about that is if you go to listen to, to the archive and listen to past shows, all through 2020, there was a number of times I brought up what was happening in New York concerning the pandemic. And one of the things I kept harping on was Governor Cuomo had a, and other states in our union had a uh, a policy that said, we are going to put sick residents back into nursing homes that were infected with COVID that may still be contagious. We're going to put them back into nursing homes. And what you saw was a, a, an estimate of deaths or, or a report of deaths in nursing homes that, that many were arguing was not accurate. Many folks were saying, that, look, New York is not being honest about the numbers when it comes to nursing home deaths. Now, now, New York was ground zero, pardon the, the, the phrase, but it was ground zero for the pandemic early on. A ton of people were dying. A lot of people were getting sick uh, via COVID, and, and a lot of things were happening. So New York shut down, still pretty much shut down. And, and what we saw was we began to learn what was happening in nursing homes. And so what you saw is a lot of people, you know, really celebrating the leadership of Governor Cuomo. You saw Governor Cuomo go on CNN with his brother, Chris Cuomo, and they were uh, making jokes and, and talking about how big the nose, what noses were and having giant Q-tips and all of these things. And they were making light of it as people were dying in the state. And then Cuomo wrote a book about leadership and he attacked President Trump and everybody on the left celebrated him. And he, I believe he won an award for that book. And everybody were celebrating his leadership, although New York saw more deaths, more positive cases than pretty much any state around. And see, they were using those moments to attack other states. They were attacking states like Tennessee or states like Florida or states like South Dakota, who didn't see near the death rate as New York did. And, and throughout that whole time, we were saying, and other publications were saying, look, New York, we don't think is being completely honest when it comes to nursing home deaths. We don't think they're being completely honest. We think there's been more nursing home deaths than they're reporting. Well, just last week, we find out that we were right. AP says this, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration confirmed Thursday that thousands more nursing home residents died of COVID-19 than the state's official tallies had previously acknowledged, dealing a potential blow to his image as a pandemic hero. That's what matters, right? Whether he's a hero or not. The surprise development, it's not a surprise, folks. It's not a surprise. Go back and look at the archive. I, I talked about this months ago because I believe the New York Post, or the New York Times, somebody, I think it was the New York Post, were saying, look, he's underreporting this. At that time, they were saying, actually, the, the number of deaths in nursing homes is doubled what they're reporting. And this AP article says the surprise development comes 
after months of the states refusing to divulge its true numbers, show listen to this number, showed that at least 12,743 long-term care residents died of the virus as of January 19 of 2021, far greater than the official tally of 8,505 on that day, cementing New York's toll as one of the highest in the nation. Those numbers are consistent with a report released just hours earlier by State Attorney General. So, so if you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe this report is happening because there's a conservative, uh, uh, publication that is seeking to undermine the leadership of, of Governor Cuomo. So it's conservatives that are actually twisting the truth. Well, well, listen to this. Who did this study? Who investigated this? Those numbers are consistent with a report released just hours earlier by who? The state attorney general there in New York, charging that the nursing home death count could be off by about 50%, largely because New York is one of the only states to count just those who died on facility grounds, not those who later died in the hospital. Do you hear that? So so if you're a nursing home resident, you got COVID and were taken to the hospital and died at the hospital, you're not counted as a nursing home death. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would do that because their policy of putting sick residents back into nursing homes was a terrible policy. So they're trying to cover that up. They're trying to to pad the numbers to fluff a little bit so it doesn't look as bad. Even though that policy is what made those people sick to begin with. While we cannot bring back, listen to what was said, while we cannot bring back the individuals we lost to this crisis, this report seeks to offer transparency that the public deserves. That's what the Attorney General said. The 76-page report from a fellow Democratic official undercuts Cuomo's frequent argument that the criticism of his handling of the virus in nursing homes was part of a political blame game, and it was a vindication for thousands of families who believed their loved ones were being omitted from counts to advance the governor's image as a pandemic hero. They're celebrating the man's leadership. There were folks on national news outlets celebrating Governor Cuomo's leadership in New York. During a pandemic where he wrote a book. Now, now, look, people want to talk about politicians playing golf. People want to talk about politicians taking days off. During the pandemic, Governor Cuomo wrote a book. He, he wrote a book. On leadership. He wrote a book touting how good he is. Think about the ego that you have to have. That during a pandemic, while people are dying, while what we know now to be close to 13,000 nursing home residents died of COVID, your governor was writing a book. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. That's no time to be writing a book. It's important to me that my mom was counted. This is what uh, Vivian Zayas, whose 78-year-old mother died in April after contracting COVID-19 at a nursing home in New York, said. She said, families like mine knew these numbers were not correct. Cuomo's office referred all questions to the state health department. Several hours after the report, State Department of Health Commissioner Howard Zucker released a lengthy statement attempting to refute James's report, but which essentially confirmed its central finding. Zucker's figure of 12,743 nursing home resident deaths included for the first time 3,829 confirmed COVID-19 fatalities of those residents who had been transported to hospitals. Those figures could be even higher, but the health department said its audit was ongoing. 
didn't break out deaths presumed but not confirmed to be caused by the virus and omitted those in assisted living or other types of long-term care facilities. Zucker, however, still stuck, uh, still took issue with James's characterization of his department's official tally as an undercount. He said, let's see, DOH was always clear that the data on its website pertains to in-facility in fatalities. James has four months been examining discrepancies between the number of deaths being reported by the state's Department of Health and the number of deaths reported by the homes themselves. Her investigators looked at a sample of 62 of the state's roughly 600 nursing homes. They reported 1,914 deaths of residents from COVID-19, while the State Department of Health logged only 1,229 deaths at those same facilities. Thursday's release backed up the findings of an Associated Press investigation last year that concluded that the state could be understating deaths by as much as 65%. This is the thing. So the AP just said right here, we did a study last year that said the death rate, the death totals were underreported. And then earlier in this same article, they said the surprise investigation said this. Well, if you did a study a year ago that said the numbers were, were being underreported, it's not a surprise. If anything, it's criminal. State Senator Gustavo Rivera, a Democrat who has blasted the Como administration for its incomplete death count, said he was sadly unsurprised by the report. He said this, family who's lost loved ones deserve honest answers. For their sake, I hope that this report will help us unveil the truth and put policies in place to prevent such tragedies in the future. Cuomo, who last fall released a book touting his leadership in dealing with the virus, has not been shy about using New York's lower nursing home death count to make the argument that his state is doing better than others in caring for those in such facilities. So he's lying. He said this, there's also no doubt that we're in this hyper-political environment, so everybody wants to point fingers. He says, New York, actually, we're number 46 out of 50 in terms of percentage of deaths in nursing homes. It's not predominantly a New York problem. Again, he's pushing the blame uh, elsewhere. The Attorney General's report also took, him at, took aim at New York controversial March 25th policy that sought to create more space in hospitals by releasing recovering COVID-19 patients into nursing homes, which critics contended was a driving factor in causing nursing home outbreaks. Of course it was. You put contagious people back in a population of the most vulnerable people. And then you're surprised that the most vulnerable people who already have comorbidities, who already are struggling in nursing homes, are getting COVID and dying. Folks, this is so ridiculous. That's why I get amped about it. No one around that conference table said, excuse me, governor, but we know this virus attacks the elderly. We know this virus attacks those with comorbidities. Where do you find the elderly and those with comorbidities? You find them in nursing homes. Why in the world would we put contagious people back into those nursing homes? When our hospitals aren't overrun. When we have other places we can put them. We took a, a naval ship up there and never used it. Instead, we put them back in the nursing homes. Samaritan's Purse set up outside tents to help. And we're told, get out of New York. We don't need your help. We don't need your kind coming and helping us. So instead, we're going to put nursing home residents that are infected, that are contagious, back in nursing homes to, to infect others. Shame on you, Governor. James' report said those admissions may have contributed to an increased risk of nursing home resident infection and subsequent fatalities, noting that at least 4,000 nursing home residents with COVID-19 died after that guidance. Uh, yeah, of course they did. But James' report said the issue would require further study to conclusively prove such a link. 
New York's death department released, or health department released a much criticized report last summer that claimed the March 25th policy, which was reversed in May, was not a significant factor in deaths. That, that is the biggest hogwash I've ever heard. James Review also found that a lack of infection controls in nursing homes put residents at increased risk of harm. Look, it's not about their lack of infectious control. If you are a facility and you're being told, hey, we're going to give you back some people, and guess what? They're contagious. Good luck. That's what they were told. Good luck. They're contagious. They're going to get your residents sick. A lot of your residents are probably going to die. So good luck. That's what you saw in the state of New York. And I'm glad that finally somebody's reporting on it. And and hopefully something comes of it. We'll talk more when we come back. Martina McBride. That's a good one. This is Andrew Wood. We're finishing up the show today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, That last segment got a little hot. (laughs) I got a little loud. I bet I redlined uh, the vocals in there. But but listen, look, as we as we think about what's happening around our country, as we think about what's happened uh, during the pandemic, it is important. It's especially important when a politician, when a governor of a state goes in front of the camera, any opportunity he gets to brag about how good he's doing. He takes time during a pandemic while people are dying, while people are sick, while people are losing their jobs, while restaurants are being closed. The governor takes time to write a book. To say just how good he is and how blessed we are to have him as the governor of the state of New York. It's important that we hold them accountable. It's important that we see these numbers. It's important for the families in the state of New York that, that feel like they were getting the shaft. It's important for families that have, have family members at these nursing homes where sick individuals were put back into those nursing homes and infected their loved ones. It's important that they know that. And if the policy wasn't a wrong-headed policy, they would have never rescinded it. They rescinded it because it was a wrong-headed policy. The difference with this particular policy and, and some other policies is, is real-life ramifications occurred where residents died because they got sick after contagious individuals were put back into nursing homes. And it's shameful. You see, this is what happens when you when you try to legislate and, 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 and govern from an aerial view and dealing with issues instead of going, hold on, what is this going to do for our most vulnerable population in nursing homes to this virus? This is going to harm them. Maybe we don't need to enact this policy. It's really that simple. And you don't even need, this isn't me playing Monday morning quarterback. This isn't hindsight is 2020. This is... This is, we knew from the very beginning, COVID-19 was really bad for the elderly. And COVID-19 is really bad for those with comorbidities, those that may have heart disease, those that may have diabetes, those that that may be obese, those that may have, uh, and the list goes on and on and on, or cancer survivors. What are you going to find in nursing homes? You're going to find people with heart disease. You're going to find cancer survivors. You're going to find people that that are are deficient in vitamin D. We knew that from the beginning. And yet here we are. And so I'm glad that the Attorney General of the State of New York investigated. I'm glad they were transparent. I'm glad they brought this information to light. I just pray that something is done with it. Look, we we need to get past politicians trying to be authors and, and rock stars. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. 
Seems like every senator now wants to write a book. Why do they write books? Because that that makes them money, obviously, but also gets their name out there. So if they ever want to run for president, they now have a book to, to go around and talk about. We see this on both sides of the aisle, and it's a problem. Do you want to be a public servant or not? Or do you want to be a rock star? Do you want to be a celebrity? You need to answer that question before you run for office. If you want to be a rock star and a celebrity, then go do something else. Start a YouTube page, but don't run for office. We don't need rock stars and celebrities. We need public servants that want to lead and serve the the population that they've been entrusted with. And so hopefully we'll see more of that moving forward. Today is Groundhog's Day. I haven't mentioned that at all. It's Groundhog's Day. The the uh, Pucks Tony Phil, he saw his shadow, apparently. And so if you believe in that, that means six more weeks of winter. Uh, I'm just ready for warm weather. We got our snow at Christmas. So I always want a big snow. We got that at Christmas time. So bring on spring. Bring on summer. Let's get warm. Uh, I don't look forward to mowing and weed eating, but I do look forward to warmer weather. And so hopefully that'll come soon. Hopefully the, the groundhog is, uh, is a liar and he's, he's wrong and he didn't see a shadow. Uh, I'm not sure how they tell if he see, if he sees a shadow, if he gets spooked by it and runs back in his cage. I'm not sure how they tell, but either way, hopefully he's wrong and hopefully springtime is coming. If you want to partner with us at investinghope.com, you can do that at investinghope.com. If you want to partner with Hope Resource Center, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. Uh, it's been it's been a blast. The month of January, I've visited a lot of churches, spoke about hope and life and the gospel. Uh, this Sunday, I will be at Hardin Valley Free Will Baptist Church. Be speaking uh, this Sunday is going to be a blast, and uh, and then in a couple weeks, I'll be at Shoreline speaking at my home church, and then uh, a couple more weeks, I'll be speaking at Fountain City Church. It's going to be a, a fun time over the next few weeks. Uh, if you can't be at one of those churches to hear me, just tune in right here every Tuesday afternoon at 5 o'clock on Joy 620 or listen to our podcast and you can get all you want uh, there. We, we appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you next week.